Arjo helps create safer and more efficient healthcare environments, from patient handling and mobilization to hygiene and pressure injury prevention. Arjo offers a range of solutions designed to help you navigate the challenges of today's healthcare settings. Learn more about Arjo and their solutions at www.arjo.ca. www.arjo.ca. Imagine that you have the right, no matter what your situation, whether you have cognitive decline or you're just incredibly vulnerable, you have the ability to always live with purpose and to always up your game, so to speak, no matter what your stage in life. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. I'm delighted to be hosting our first podcast episode. The pandemic has been devastating for seniors in Ontario and around the world, and has shown us just how much the current system of care for seniors needs to change. And these changes need to happen at the same time that we are facing a massive population increase in seniors over the age of 80 in the next 15 years. Baby boomers represent the largest subset of our population currently between the ages of 57 and 75. They have defined the society we live in now, and they've defined it very differently than their parents. How do we reimagine aging to better support them as they get older? Today, I'll be joined by Moira Welsh, the author of Happily Ever Older. Moira wrote her book through the pandemic, following almost two decades as an award-winning investigative journalist with the Toronto Star, covering seniors care in Canada. Moira is in Ontario, Canada, at her home in Toronto. Today, we really want to talk about some of the challenges. How do we reimagine long-term care? And then what does the future look like? What's the path to the future? We have never seen such a focus on long-term care and seniors as we are seeing today in the media, government, and from the public and from families. What do we do with this? Where do we go from here? What does this mean? It's a really great point. This is a time of reckoning. People finally, the the greater public is aware of long-term care and all of the challenges that residents and staff and operators have faced for many, many years. And at the same time, the first wave of the boomer generation has is reaching 75 and slowly but surely they are turning their attention to these issues of how they will live in their later years. So it's a real culmination of events um, brought on in, in a sense by the pandemic and, and by demographics. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack with that. But I would say this is the time now and, and to create real change. And if we don't do it now, if we don't succeed, I don't think we ever will. So you have this wonderful new book, Happily Ever Older. Congratulations. So 
talk to me about your book. Like you, you, you got in the middle of this uh, extraordinary pandemic and darkness, you had an opportunity to explore more positive elements of, of innovation and, and opportunity. Perhaps you can share with us uh, who you spoke to, where you went and uh, the general flavor of, of what's in your book. It's, it's a great read. I have to tell everybody. Oh, thank you so much. And my book was actually inspired by the reaction to a story that I did and published in 2018 for the Toronto Star uh, about the transformation of one dementia household in a Peel region home from a traditional home to a home that focused on um, relationship-based care. And the response to that was, it so surprised me that I thought, okay, what else is out there? Because people were so enthused about the idea and, and so I decided to go out and, and find these other homes and, and write a book about it. And so I uh, found that there were really interesting leaders who are creating change and always evolving. And I think that was one of the most inspiring pieces about my research. And, and I, what I found in my book was that people who are leading these homes and leading change, they're, they're bold. They're, they don't accept no for an answer. They don't accept regulation, you know, A, um, as, as a reason to not move forward. But they're also willing to say, you know, I didn't go far enough or I made a mistake here and I need to do this differently because nothing is perfect immediately. And I think we're always striving for perfection and not actually moving forward for something that's actually really good as opposed to perfect. But I went to these different communities and I found they had a shared DNA um, in terms of focused on individual residents, freedom of movement, the ability to have a life, even if you have cognitive decline, they gave people freedom to step outside, be part of the community, go, go for walks in the sunshine. In Dehogovic, I spent time with the founder of the, their village concept, and they have a lot of opportunity for people to step out of their very tiny households and go for walks on their own or watch people um, playing the piano in the courtyard or go to a little shop and pick up a bottle of wine for, for dinner. That's, that's all part of their world. But the founder kept speaking about a normal life and the, the value of that and the, the, the importance of familiarity, especially for people who do have cognitive decline. But also he spoke about being outside and having the sun on your, on your face and when we were finished, I, I remember asking him, what did you mean by that? And he said, it is to feel alive. And so I would just say that they all have, have this shared DNA focused on the residents and the staff and giving people opportunities to have joy, friendship, and uh, just a lot of fun, which is a normal part of life. You were writing your book in the middle of the pandemic, and that gave you a vantage point into what was happening in other parts of the world. How do we compare globally when you think about the conversations and the programs that you visited and the people that you met while you were writing? And how do seniors fit into their societies, the societies of, of those communities that, that you went into? We know that Canada as a whole did not do well in terms of protecting its long-term care residents, we had very high number of deaths. And for my book, what I found really interesting moving towards um, probably the, the middle or later part of the first year of the pandemic was that studies started to show that individualized homes that are smaller spaces, the homes like the greenhouse model that I visited and some of the others 
actually fared very well in terms of eliminating um, the spread of COVID or just simply not attracting it to begin with because they have these smaller spaces. So for me, what I found so interesting was that I, I looked at individual homes within different regions. And so those regions would very much um, have had homes that were very troubled with COVID infections. But the homes that I visited were those real progressive models that have its sort of entrenched in their DNA, a resident first philosophy. And I'll give you an example of a home in Atlanta where they um, use what we call up here, the butterfly model. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, they thought, okay, how are we going to deal with this? So they asked their staff if they would live on site so they would stop the spread from the community inside the homes. And they had over 60 workers agreed to do that. And they lived there for, I believe it was the first three months. And the owner of the home said, it was because of our relationship-based model of care that enabled us to have these deep connections with the residents and this real desire among the workers to go above and beyond to help them. There was a really interesting study in the Journal of American Metal Directors and it talked about the use of small scale homes, like such as it highlighted the greenhouse model. And they studied it and found, again, as I said, that there were just very few infections because of the smaller model, which makes a lot of sense, actually. There are fewer workers coming and going. There are fewer people living within that space and um, infections simply don't spread as easily. So that's something to really consider for the future. So how do we start to move the needle on this, as you called, a time of reckoning? There's a lot to be done. So we could start it in a couple of different ways. One is it would really help, for example, if the national standards would look at the importance of the individual resident, the, the individual, and, and treat that person in long-term care as if they are a person of value, where they have a right to a life of um, freedom of movement, freedom to go outside, a life of spontaneity and uh, social connections, deep, deep social connections. And so while those may sound very aspirational, um, those are really, really important to, to have enshrined if we do have national standards in those and also in provincial regulations as well. And there are different ways we could discuss that might help to, to make to implement that. So that's one piece of it. And you mentioned the issue of ageism. So we have to confront that. That's uh, such an important piece of it. it. It is so true. And I think the pandemic has exposed that, that the deepness of that issue and, and how it has impacted older people, especially those living in long-term care. We've seen, and, and I've written stories for The Star about this, where people are not able to access proper hospital care because, for example, the provincial government measures the number of hospital visits by older people who are living in long-term care homes. And it's, it's seen as a negative, even though they have the right to the same medical care as anyone else. So there's a lot of ways that we can change that sort of inherent institutional ageism and move forward so that people are allowed to live up to their potential in their later years. And if I can say, that's, that's one of the points that I found so interesting in my research. And I, I hadn't thought about it when I started, but the issue of potential. Imagine that you have the right, no matter what your situation, whether you have cognitive decline or you're just incredibly vulnerable, 
you have the ability to always live with purpose and to always up your game, so to speak, no matter what your stage in life. And it's really, really interesting to have seen that happen in real time with people who, who told me stories of, for example, a woman in the Saskatoon home who learned how to swim at the age of 91. She bought her first bathing suit at the age of 91 and learned how to swim. You know, that's exciting. There's a real life and zest to those homes that allow people to live up to their potential at any age. It's such an interesting point as we think about what is long-term care. And, and I know in your book, you, you talked more about elders than seniors. We know from our discussions that this new baby boomer generation doesn't think about aging in the same way that their parents did or their grandparents did. So how, how do we reimagine this and how do we reframe it? In those really special cases, in those uh, inspirational homes, how did they manage some of this dynamic uh, and that tension between a more medical model, but also that, to your to your point, more purposeful living. I think a lot of them had to operate with ingenuity, especially at the beginning when we really didn't know what was going on and how the infections spread. So a lot of homes did lock down, even those with some of those progressive programs. But what they tried to do because they had the training to connect with residents and they had spent a lot of time building up those relationships. They maintained you know, the conversation, the, the liveliness of, of that world, even though they were, you know, the, the unit, so to speak, was closed to, to the outside part of the home. And, and so I'll give you an example at a butterfly home in Peel region. There was a woman who, she actually became quite depressed because they also were struggling with the lockdown and, and the isolation of families not being able to come in. So they, again, obviously they tried, but she seemed to decline. So she was a fashionista and, and she loved beautiful clothes. And that part of her life seemed to be missing during this period. So they were able to bring in a fashion dummy, so to speak, and put on a lovely different outfit every week for her. And because she loved the company of men, they had male workers come in from the region and sit and chat with her and have tea. And that brought up her spirits considerably. So those are just different examples of doing things. And I know in Sherbrooke Community Centre in Saskatoon, I kept checking in with them. How are you doing? And they kept life alive, even though the units were closed. They had been, they had been attempting to open them up so that all residents with or without cognitive decline had the freedom to move throughout the home. That changed during the lockdown, but life inside continued with music and activities. So they just had a focus on that. That's so motivating to really think about the individual. We talk about the long-term care sector. We talk about homes. We talk about residents. How do we bring the real people into this? And, and in my view, that's something we've lost in this. We focused on numbers, a lot of numbers on how many people died, how many people are in the system. And yet everyone's an individual with a life and a family and uh, a life well-lived, hopefully, and 
people who have actually built our communities as, as we go forward. How do we validate that and not lose that sense of humanity instead of talking about the bricks and mortar uh, and the funding and the rules? You've talked in your book about some intergenerational models that you encountered as well. Um, are there opportunities as we reimagine what long-term care is and, and, and how we make these homes really come more alive and more pur- purposeful, to use your word again? What do you think is feasible? What, what can we do and how do we move this model forward and, and perhaps encourage the people who work and, and lead long-term care and the people who are the decision makers? How do we get them excited about what this opportunity is and not just clamp down more and rigid cookie cutter models? It may require some new leaders in the field, but if we embrace a concept of thriving, of elders and staff thriving in the home. To me, that is one way of moving forward. You know, you can have policy discussions on how wording might be required for regulations. And I I appreciate that, you know, it's hard to write a regulation about thriving, but I, I do think there are ways of getting at that so that homes have to do more than just aspire to being a, a homier or a, a more lively place to live, but they actually have to be measured in a sense on that. And we need to find ways to measure those approaches, to measure happiness. And I talked about that in my book, the challenges that people have doing that because the, the research model is faced, focused on the randomized control model trials. And so the happiness measurement doesn't really fit in with those. It's not like you know checking your blood pressure. But there are ways, I think, around that. And people are trying very hard to find solutions for that. Another piece of it is, you know, I I talked to Frank Graves, who's the president of Ecos Research, and we were chatting about long-term care. And he has done a lot of polling on that. And he said his polling shows consistently that this is a huge issue for the public. And he has not seen it change, even as the vaccinations have taken hold in the homes and the numbers have decreased. So he then I said, you know, do you think that will change over the next year or so? And he said, no, like he thinks people are very, very passionate about this. They were outraged by what they saw during the pandemic. So I think that governments federally and provincially should be aware that this matters to people. And they've got that first wave of the boomers hitting 75 and age is is no longer abstract to many of them. It's a real thing. So I think there's an opportunity because of this public demand for change to really push forward. And I'd like to talk about staffing for a minute because homes could make a significant difference in the ease with which they operate. If they were to bring in some of these more progressive philosophies or programs, those programs inherently attract more workers because it's a hard job. It doesn't pay the greatest, but there are a lot of people who are naturally inclined to be caregivers, but they're exhausted and burned out by this task-focused system. If they're able to work in a home where they have autonomy over decision-making about the emotional, I'm not talking about medical care, but the emotional care of the people they work with, that goes a long way in terms of attracting people and retaining people. And I'll give you an example. I was speaking with Sue Ellen Beattie, who's the CEO of the Sherbrooke Community Center in Saskatoon. And she said that among their full-time staff, their retention rate is 95%. People just don't leave. They, they do not leave because they have satisfaction working within that program. And that's the Eden alternative that they happen to use. 
So it makes a big, big difference. And the way you treat your workers is the way the workers treat the people who live there. And that's, that is a message I heard in every location I visited. That was one of the main messages was be good to your staff, show them how they can live up to their potential, and they will do the same for the people who live there. Moira and I talked about reimagining long-term care, redefining what care for seniors needs to look like. And what really came out of our discussion and struck me was we need to prepare for the baby boom generation. There is a lot that can be done and it doesn't have to be a cookie cutter. And in fact, it should not be a cookie cutter. We should encourage and allow for innovation, more relationship-based models, but also more innovative models where we think about intergenerational living, where we think about a continuum of care from independence in the home through to what is end-of-life care. Looking at different models where people have choice, where they can live, where they have independence, where they have freedom, uh, where they have potential and purpose. Freedom of movement and spontaneity, fostering deep social connections. We really have this opportunity to re-anchor the care for seniors and re-anchor it in people. And let's bring it back to people. That's my key takeaway here is this is about relationships. We're talking about human beings. It's not about homes. It's not about beds. And it's not about numbers. We have to make this about people. These are important themes. But how do we actually make sure seniors' care is prioritized by our leaders and our decision makers so that we can bring these innovative models to life? Maura had some fantastic insights. The continuum of care needs a lot more attention from helping people remain healthy and stay in the communities that are age-friendly and um, enable people to walk and and, uh, social connections, community groups and organizations that can keep people out of the isolation of their individual homes, because that's something we forget about. Of course, we want to live in our own home, but I saw with my parents living in their own home quite proudly They were also quite isolated at the same time. So I think there needs to be a real movement. And I've seen this in other communities. I spoke with someone from, it is a movement called Momentia, and it's in Seattle. And they talk about creating a, a lot of inclusion for people with cognitive decline and without cognitive decline, and having ways for people simply to connect for the, for the friendships and just stimulation, being out in community, walking, going to art galleries and so on. So that's one piece of it. In many ways, we also need to take responsibility for ourselves and get healthy, stay active and become very social. And, you know, there are many of us who are introverts out there. And so you don't really think about that. But as I'm reading through the pandemic and now studies are coming out talking about the value of social interactions. And and we've seen how lonely so many people have been through the pandemic and in long-term care, people significantly so, but also in the community. So moving forward, we also need to sort of inspire ourselves to create 
a way to live that enables us to remain healthy and active longer. But another point that I saw, which was of real value, were the day programs. And I'm talking about the enriched day programs. And I went to San Diego and there was a program there and they had it styled um, to sort of benefit from reminiscence therapy of a 1950s uh, town in America. But they had a lot of arts and music in there as well, which was really, really enriching for the people who came there. But that allowed families to go about their days, have that respite, have that downtime, and it delayed the entry to long-term care. And so I, I think, you know, for many people, that's a great option. So obviously home care is a huge discussion. And, you know, you can look at other countries that prepare decades in advance for the aging demographic. And what they do is they help people who don't necessarily need a bath or a shower or any, you know, sort of medical help, but they help them with the maintenance of their home or they um, can help them go grocery shopping or cook their food, even if they don't have serious health issues. Those are ways to keep people independent in their homes. So I think there's a lot of work to do in those areas. I would agree. I know from my own family experience, I went part-time to support my mom with my father who had Alzheimer's at home. And he participated in a wonderful Alzheimer's Day program. Uh, And when it came time for him to transition into long-term care, that day program had been located co-located in the long-term care home where he he ultimately went to, to live and die, quite honestly. But it gave us a lot more comfort too and a, and a lot of support because it was familiar for all of us. We're certainly seeing governments talking about investments and we're putting more money in and we're building new homes. I love what you've talked about in, in that theme. Uh, this is about relationships. This is about people. This is about more individualized approaches and respecting people's rights and autonomy. This really is a moment It's of disruption and we need to let it be disruptive instead of defaulting back into the box of, of the legislation or the box of the funding model or the box that's, that are these homes. And uh, love your inspiration. It really is such, such a great opportunity. And you and I have had a lot of discussions over the last year. And I would say getting to know you has been one of, one of my gifts and being able to read your book and in this moment of darkness, and we're, t- we're taping this as we're deep into the third wave, which is promising to be quite ominous outside of long-term care, thankfully, and in our homes in Ontario, we were prioritized for vaccines. We're seeing those work, but we still have to remain vigilant. But to your point in your book as well, we also need to act urgently to meet what's coming. And I look forward to working with you and supporting your work, your very important work, as you hold government and others accountable and uh, working to drive the change we need. This is our moment. This is the time of reckoning. And let's not squander it. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words. And, and I, I think that um, what you say, I, I think a lot of people will pay attention to that. And if I can add one point to that, We should not just be grateful for the few changes we hear are coming our way. So, for example, um, the four hours of daily direct care per day, you know, within a few years. That's great. And that's wonderful. But let's not just accept that as, as the end result and our, you know, the great accomplishment to come from this experience, because that will not change the system. The system will still remain institutionalized, even with a few extra workers. 
And what we need is to train those workers and to change the way leadership looks at long-term care and, and to bring in these programs and philosophies that allow everyone to thrive. And I would say, you know, if I was a leader of long-term care, I would be jumping on that because my life is going to be much more interesting if I'm, you know, creating something new and purposeful and sort of changing the world in which I'm operating in. I think that um, there's just a, a lot to aspire toward for, for many, many people in different jobs in the system. There can be no going back. As we look at technology, new partnerships, uh, new rules, new approaches, new ways of talking about long-term care and reimagining it, let's look at what's being done well in other countries. There are pockets of excellence. I, I'm not sure anybody has totally figured it out yet, but let's start. Let's celebrate incrementalism and let's get on that path to that, that whole new destination in which I'm approaching. So <laughs> I, I want it to be ready for me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Moira. It's, uh, uh, congratulations on your book. Uh, it's it's a wonderful thing that that you're sharing with us and, and you're moving the discussion in a really positive and far more hopeful direction at a as we come out of a time that's been incredibly dark. So uh, love your positive energy and optimism and, and the sense of possibilities. So again, thank you very much and take care and keep safe. Thank you very much. My discussion with Maura was extremely insightful and provided me with a, a real sense of optimism and possibilities, especially given all that we've been through over the last 14 months uh, in our long-term care homes and our senior sector. It's really a great moment to stop and really think about the future and how we can make things different. So here are my takeaways from my discussion with Maura. First, right now, we are in a time of reckoning. The public is now aware of the challenges that long-term care has been facing for decades and is ready now to push for real change. Time is ticking and we need our leaders to take note. As Maura mentioned, it's an exciting and pivotal time to redefine what long-term care is and how and where care homes fit and what should be a continuum of care from independence to the end of life. But as she noted, it is also a time of moral imperative. We have to act now. The second takeaway, at the end of the day, long-term care, however it's defined, is about people. Moira provided us with some amazing examples of care homes and their leaders who pioneered a people-first philosophy, focusing on the relationships between their staff, residents, and families. Models in the Netherlands, the United States, and Canada were featured in our discussion, where leaders used a relationship-based model of care during the COVID-19 pandemic and enabled their staff and supported their staff in going above and beyond, including even living in the home with their residents. In these instances, not only were these leaders and their staff teams able to minimize the spread of COVID-19, but they were able to keep the morale of their residents, their staff, and their families high. Imagine what could happen if this became a universal philosophy in our care homes, but also in how we support our seniors more broadly. 
And third, Moira pointed out the gaps between the current long-term care system and what it will take to prepare for the baby boom and future generations. Seniors, and quite honestly, all of us, need freedom of movement, spontaneity, and deep social connections. We need to confront institutional ageism so that we can give seniors and ourselves in the future access to proper care, choice, and agency. And finally, the issue of potential, our own individual potential, the potential of our seniors, no matter where they live, needs to be considered. No matter our age, seniors and ourselves need the ability to live our purpose and continue to grow. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. To learn more about Moira, you can follow her on Twitter at Moira Welsh, and you can find her work by going to the Toronto Star. You can purchase her inspiring and insightful book, Happily Ever Older, online at Indigo, Amazon, independent bookstores, as an ebook from Kindle and Kobo, or as an audiobook on Audible. Our next episode will be airing on June 22nd, when we will be focused on discussing mental health in seniors and long-term care. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.